Good morning, everybody. Very glad to be together with you guys. Let's open our Bibles to the book of James as we continue on in our second week now of this verse-by-verse study. Uh, Through this letter that was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, and James is a book that is full of wisdom. It is similar to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Uh, and what we're going to find today, we're going to find some very wise, and as Rob said, some very challenging instruction for us to follow Jesus. But I want us to recall from last week that we learned if anyone lacks wisdom, we can go directly to God and we can ask Him for spiritual understanding. And so God loves to give wisdom to those who come to him in faith, expecting that he is going to give it. So God wants for every single one of us who came to church today to leave here with more wisdom. Not more knowledge, more wisdom. Wisdom, you could say, is knowledge applied. That we would gain the knowledge of God's word today, but that we would apply it to our lives in the way that we live out. And so, As we come here to church today, we come hopefully with this mindset, a mindset that is expectant. And so here's how I'm coming today, and I hope you would join me to come to the Lord in this way. I am going to draw near to God today, and in doing that, God is going to draw near to me. And by drawing near to God and Him drawing near to me, I am going to receive something from God today, something that is good, something that is right, something that is perfect for what I need. And so this is a relational thing. This is an experiential thing that each one of us would want to have as we come before God today. So as I said last Sunday, no one needs to leave church without having received something from Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So James chapter 1, today we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 18. Let me read the scripture and then we'll pray together. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So let's pray together. God, we come to you today, and we come before your word, and we ask that you would make us wise by your word. And God, you are good. You are perfect. And Lord, thank you that you speak to us. 
And so, God, as your servants, we are listening. God, as you speak, I pray that we would both hear what your word tells us and that we would do what your word tells us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So starting back in verses 9 through 10, we learn some wisdom about wealth. This is what we read first. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So this is what I mean when I say that the book of James is sort of like Proverbs, because we have this small bit of instruction here about wealth, about riches and poverty and This part sort of stands alone, almost like a proverb or even something that you would see out of the book of Ecclesiastes. The ladies just studied that book, and it it sounds very similar, right? And, And so I think what we can do, though, is we can make a connection to what was written before this verse and what will be written after. And it's that throughout our life here on earth, we will face various kinds of trials and temptations, right? But one of the significant areas of trials and temptations that will come to us will be in the area of our financial situation, whether we are rich or poor. You see, money and our relationship to money can bring all kinds of trials and temptations. Now, the Bible recognizes that money is a neutral object. Money is used to buy and to sell, um, and although we live in a world today that has a you know, very complex economic system, at the end of the day, money is just an object, an object that one person may have a lot of and another person may have a little of. And James knows both in his time and in our time that in this world, there will be those who are rich and there are those who will be poor. And that God's wisdom toward money remains the same whether you have a lot of it or you only have a little of it. Whether you're using denarius or Bitcoin, it doesn't matter. God's wisdom of His Word applies across all time to all people, no matter their financial status. Now, James isn't so much as interested here in the number that appears in your bank account. But what he is interested in is the condition of your heart. Again, money is a neutral object, but is the human heart neutral about money? No, right? We, our hearts do all kinds of funny things with money. It's why Jesus said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because we have a way of making money our master. We have a way of of our finances becoming sort of like an idol or a a lord to us. And therefore, James says here in verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So James says to the lowly brother, now this would be the one who does not have uh, much wealth, right, to lay claim to in this world. He tells him to boast in his exaltation because for the person who is poor, they have a lot of room to go up. And if God decides to exalt the lowly man either by giving him more riches or more honor either in this life or the life to come, 
that can be something for him to boast about. Now, now, even for the lowly person, the person who has financial lack, that can be a certain kind of trial, right? That can bring about even certain kinds of temptations. Yet the trials and the temptations that the lowly brother faces seem to be more possible to overcome because of the direction that they can go. They can go from low to high from humility to exaltation, from poverty to wealth, which, which we could say is an easier direction to go since you're going up. The rich man, on the other hand, might have to go through what, what I would consider perhaps a more difficult trial and temptation because of his wealth, because of the direction that he must go. You see, James says in verse 10, let the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. To go from wealth to poverty, from exaltation to humiliation, from high to low, that's a harder pill to swallow, one that the rich young ruler didn't want to take. This is why Jesus said it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Look, we, we get so excited, right, when we see our stocks going up. It's a lot harder when we see them going down. There's something about the human nature that loves exaltation and humiliation is a little bit harder. And, and, and so look, as James is talking here about wealth and you know, I, I'm happy to include myself in, in this category. Um, you'll always find people who are more rich than you, and you'll always find people who are more poor than you. It's, it's all a relative sense of whether you're rich or poor. So, um, but by comparison to the rest of the world, I, I would consider that all of us here this morning would, would be more on the side of being rich. James says, let us boast in our humiliation. For when we are brought low, we can be raised up. So the rich man, as the scriptures would teach, must not trust in his riches. The rich man must trust in Jesus. And to trust in Jesus is to empty our, ourselves of any sense of pride and self-achievement. Now let me be very clear right here. God is not looking to strip you of your financial resources. The church is not looking to strip you of your financial resources. No one here this morning is trying to take away your resources. But God does want to strip us of the pride and the trust that we place in our earthly riches. See, God wants to know where your heart is. Is it here on earth with your wealth, which is here one day and gone tomorrow, or is it with Jesus in heaven where he is? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So remember, money is just an object, and you can't take any of it with you when you die. I've, been, I've said before, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. So... Whether you have one drawer full of clothes 
or a, a walk-in closet, right? Naked you came into this world, and naked you will go. And, and it's a very strange thing when a person dies. You know how the clothes still hang in the closet, and the car is still parked in the garage, and then there comes that time when perhaps the house is sold, and hopefully the family doesn't kill themselves over the inheritance because like a flower of the grass, the rich will pass away, both the man and the money. Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You know, right now, driving throughout Palos Verdes, I love seeing the green grass after the rains. I especially love it in those beautiful areas that have those center dividers along PV Drive. You know what I'm talking about? And it's beautiful to look at because every single year, the rains come and we see this, this green grass, but without fail, summer comes. And, and the heat of the sun rises and that grass gets scorched. That beautiful green turns to dusty and dry brown. And that yellow flower, you know those little yellow flowers? The beauty of it perishes. So also, every single person whom God has placed in a wealthy community such as ours, each one will die and fade away in the midst of their pursuits. Like grass and flowers, here and alive one day, dead and gone the next. Now listen. The condition of your heart may very well be determined by this. By whether me saying all of this ticks you off and rubs you the wrong way. Or if it makes you realize that your life is meant for so much more than the riches that you either have or don't have. Our riches will come or go to us uh, however God so chooses. Therefore, we must humble ourselves and pursue God far above any pursuit of success and riches. So, let our hearts, Christians, let our hearts be neutral about money. But let our hearts be very passionate about God and his kingdom. Amen? I love Agur's wisdom in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Look, the rich and the poor both have their own trials and temptations. But if we lean into the Lord, if we trust him for our daily provisions, those trials and temptations seem to fade away. So let's read this next bit of wisdom that James gives in verse 12. Everyone doing okay here this morning? Okay. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. It's so funny that I'm like, are you guys doing all okay here today? Because, you know, it, it's interesting as a preacher, you, you, you speak about money, you touch people's finances, and it can become somewhat of a fearful thing. 
but the Word of God is what has touched our hearts today, hopefully has touched your heart regarding finances. But we're moving on from that topic now. You might be like, praise God. <laughs> okay. This next topic that we're going to consider, I wouldn't say it gets any easier. But like verses 9 and 11 sort of stand out like a proverb, um, And if we want to connect to what James says there to verse 12, we would all agree that our finances are a regular source of trial and testing of faith. Yet, we're moving on to another topic now. So in verse 12, we see James writing in a way that is now similar to Jesus' style of teaching. In particular, his teaching that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I would encourage spending your entire life reading and studying it. And it begins with a section that is known as the Beatitudes, where Jesus used those words, blessed are you. James used that same word, makarios, which can be translated blessed or happy. Now, Jesus taught us the happy life. You guys all want to live the happy life, right? Jesus taught us the happy life when he taught the paradoxical blessing of the Beatitudes, So verse 12 comes to us like a beatitude, this upside-down heart attitude telling us that through difficulty there is reward. Happy is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. Now, if you were here last week, what we learned about is that trials test our faith to produce steadfastness. And if you're here this week, guess what? It means that you've remained steadfast. You're still here, aren't you? You've made it through perhaps what was a trial last week. Or, you know, you might still be in the thick of it, but happy are you because you are remaining steadfast under it. God may have you in the fire right now, but he knows how hot and for how long. And in our trials, God is doing something. Now, the word there in verse 12, trial, by its context can also be translated temptation, and I think it should. Trials and temptation are very similar, but there is a difference, okay? The difference is seen in the source and in the course. As we'll see in the next verses, God does not tempt anyone. God is not the source of temptation, Although temptation can be a kind of trial that God will use because God can use any trial and any temptation to refine us and to mold us, but again, God is not the source of temptation. That is a very important point for today. Now, here is the idea of now the course. We've looked at the source. God is not the source of temptation, but what is the course of temptation Well, if trials and temptation are counted as an opportunity to grow in faith, it leads to life. But if trials and temptation are counted as an opportunity to sin, it leads to death. Now, as children of God, when we are tempted and tried, which remember, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, when we are tempted or tried, We are told to look to God, not look to him as the source of temptation, but to look at him as the source of faith so that he can show us the right course to take. 
So remember, it's not a matter of if, but when you go through trials and temptation. And when the child of God, when the believer in Christ has endured, which again is also not a matter of if, but when. We will persevere because Christ will make us persevere. So when we have stood the test of faith, each person will receive a reward. What is that reward? Verse 12, you will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Do you love God? Amen, I like that. See, God has promised a reward to those who love him. You will receive the crown of life, which is one of several kingdom crowns that the Bible mentions. There's this promise of reward for the faith, the hope, and the love that we as believers abide in. The Bible speaks about an award ceremony that all believers will go through, a final testing that every Christian will stand before in God's kingdom. This final day of testing is called the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ. And it's not a judgment for sin, right? Because our sin was judged at the cross, Christians. Our sins were judged at the cross. When you appear before God, you will not be judged for your sins because your sins were judged at the cross. Amen. But you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that your works can be tested so that there can be a judgment of reward, which is why I say it is more like an award ceremony. Now, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this amazing reward ceremony for those who have endured through the testing and have finished the race of faith. So, the way that I am living my life right now is not for the temporal riches of reward. The way that I want to live my life right now It's for the eternal riches of reward that will be presented to me by my Lord and Savior on that day. See, Jesus will give to me a reward that is going to be based on the work that I have done in preparing for heaven. I like to say, if there is a crown in heaven for stacking chairs, I got that one. (laughs) Now, He will also reward you in this way. If you are walking and if you are abiding in faith, hope, and love with Jesus, you will be rewarded in heaven by your king. Now, isn't that a reality check that makes us think about how we are living for Jesus today? Would God so mark our hearts and our minds and our souls with a vision of our eternal reward? And would that influence the way that we would endure through trials and temptations? And would that influence what we are pursuing after in this life? Now go ahead. Say it. I'll say it with you. Life is hard. (laughs) Temptation is difficult. We bumble our way through this life. How can we ever get through it? With faith, with hope, with love. 
knowing that your sins were judged at the cross and that God has a promise of reward for those who love him. Because can I tell you, friend, heaven is not that far away. Heaven is not that far away. And when we get to heaven, there will be no more faith because we will see him. And there will be no more hope for who hopes what they, for what they can see. There will only be love because we will forever be in the perfect and loving presence of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love what Peter says in his epistle. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You know, Jesus told his disciples that he walked with and, and, and appeared before, you believe me because you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen me and yet still believe. Isn't it so amazing? The love that you can have for someone that you have never even seen. That's faith. That's hope. That's hard sometimes. I get it. I live the same life of faith that you live. But do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Because the Bible says that this life is like a vapor. It's a quick flash in comparison to what awaits us in eternity. Your life is like the green grass on PV Drive. Either you will spend eternity, which is a lot longer than your life. You will either spend it with God or you'll spend eternity apart from God. And it has everything to do with how you respond to Jesus today. Do you love him? Do you have faith in him even though you've never actually seen him? Yet faith is based on evidence. Faith is based on the testimony of scripture, which is true. Do you love him more than sin, self, and success? Because you're not promised another day and life is fragile, so what about your soul? What profits a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? So you need to decide to follow Jesus and to trust him through every season that he takes you through, from the highs to the lows to the exaltations and the humiliations, because when the time comes, you will stand before God, and it will either be a judgment of commendation, meaning that, well done, good and faithful servant, or it will be a judgment of condemnation, depart from me, I never knew you. Those who love Jesus and have received his love will be commended unto life. Those who refuse his love and deny this faith will be condemned unto death. So do you love God? That's the biggest question we could ask ourselves today. Do you love God? Yes or no? And if you love God, will you endure with faith through trials and temptations through life? Yes or no? And if you can say yes to those questions, which I pray every single person would leave here today, being able to say yes to those questions... Even through our doubting, even through our struggling, we could say yes because Jesus has loved us with a perfect love. Then you can count on receiving a heavenly reward when you meet Jesus. The crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You have loved him because he first loved you, especially in the way that he died for you. His crown of thorns has given you the crown of life. But if you're thinking about these questions and you say, you know, Daniel, I don't know if I love God. 
I don't really know who God is. Can I tell you something? God loves you. And he wants to invite you into his love. Every person who loves Jesus would be able to say, the only way that I can love God is because I know how much he has loved me. See, God loved you and he demonstrated his love for you. In that while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. God knows you and he wants to be known by you. So today, bring the real you to the real Jesus. For this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And I ain't talking about money. It's talking about the spiritual wealth that you have in knowing Jesus and being known by him. How amazing is God's love? How can we make it through this life? It's by loving him and freely gaining his reward. Now, does all this truth make us invincible then to trials and temptation? (laughs) By no means. In fact, God promised that if you love him, you can count on having trials and temptation come your way. And just remember that when they come, there is a source and there is a course of temptation. James goes into greater detail about that in these next verses, verse 13 through 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James says here that temptation will come, guaranteed. And the scriptures tell us that it will come through multiple sources, through the world, the devil, and your own flesh. All temptation can be traced back to a source, the source of Satan, the deceiver, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and, and they were lured and enticed to sin, and they did sin, and they gave birth to sin, and sin spread with death to all mankind. However, Satan also tempted Jesus, who is called the second Adam in the book of Romans. And as a man, Jesus resisted the devil. He resisted to the point of shedding his own blood, so that by his obedience, we have been given his righteousness in his life. It's been given to you because he resisted temptation completely. So Jesus is our Savior because he is the only one Whoever has and ever will resisted temptation and is perfect. That's why he can be our savior. But Jesus is also our example and that he shows us that it is possible to stand against temptation because Jesus didn't float two inches off the ground when he walked as a man on the earth. When he resisted temptation, do you know how he did it? He did it by the word of God and by the spirit of God. And you know, Christian, that if you follow Jesus, you have the two same resources. You have the Spirit of God dwelling inside you, and you have the Word of God. You have the very same resources that Jesus used to resist temptation. And so he's our example. So every person is tempted to sin, 
James doesn't say if, but when, yet. Why does James tell us to recognize the source and the course of sin? He says this in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, himself tempts no one. You know, ever since Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, sin in the garden, man has always tried to shift blame onto God. Um, God is not the one to blame for our mistakes, and He cannot be blamed for us choosing our own mistakes as though He was the one tempting us. See, God wants nothing but the best for you. God wants nothing but life for you. God is perfect. God cannot be tempted with evil, and He can tempt no one with evil. And so we would have to say that there's a different source. And we could say that it is by Satan and by our own stupidity that we fall to temptation and we sin. Does Satan tempt us? Yes. But Satan can't make you sin. You know, we like to blame the devil for a whole lot of things. We can blame him for temptation but we cannot blame him for our own sin. We decide to sin. See, Proverbs 19.3 says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. See, we make our own decisions to sin. And then we like to shift blame for our own decisions, right? I resonate with this one story in the Old Testament, the story found in Exodus uh, chapter 32 when Moses is up on the mountain with God receiving the law, and Aaron is supposed to keep watch down below in the camp, and you know what he got into, right? He tells everyone to bring their gold to him, and they're, they're bringing all their gold, and Aaron takes the gold of the people, and he puts it into the fire, and he forges out of the gold this golden calf. The, this idol for the people to worship, and he sets it up, and everybody starts dancing around it, right? Here God is on the mountain, and everyone's dancing around a golden calf. And then Aaron is confronted about this sin, and what does Aaron say? In Exodus chapter 32, verse 24, this is what he says, I threw the gold into the fire, and out came this calf, that is so bogus. <laughs> he gathered the gold, he put it in the fire, he took it out, he hammered it out, he fashioned the calf, he carved all the little things, and the people danced around it. And he tries to say, oh, I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> Not taking ownership, shifting responsibility. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They blamed. That's what the first murderer did, Cain. He blamed. And that's what I do all the time with my own sin. I blame. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll even blame my one-year-old son for sin that I clearly need to take responsibility for. <laughs> so James says to us, I know that some of you are going to try to blame God for temptation to sin, but you can't. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. See, we want to blame God or even others for the evil that we do, but guess what? You can't. The childhood phrase is true. You point the finger, you've got three pointing back at you. 
but no one can point the finger at God. All the fingers are pointing at us. So props to Job that even though his wife told him to curse God and to blame God for his situation, he wouldn't because he knew this truth. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And props to you if when you face temptations in your life, you do not blame God or blame your spouse or blame your parents or blame your upbringing or blame your country or blame whatever Take responsibility for your own sin. Now, if temptation does not come from God, where does it come from? Temptation comes from your own sinful desires. See, James doesn't mention the devil in the world as the source of temptation here, although they are. He'll mention that in verses, or chapters 3 and 4. Because before we look to the devil or to the world as the source of our own sin, James wants us to look in the mirror. This is about us. We have to take responsibility for sin. We have to own up to it. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. James says that it is by your own sinful desires that you lust and you are lured and enticed. Those words lure and entice come actually from fishing. Does anybody like fishing? Yes. Maybe a little too much. No, I'm just kidding. You know the whole gone fishing thing, you know, leaving your responsibilities. I'm joking. Um, I used to go fishing in Santa Barbara, uh, up in the, the rivers, up in the mountains there, and, and I had the best lure. Maybe you've used it, maybe you've heard about it. It's, it's called a panther marten, and it's this gold spinning lure. It's got this little thing with the little treble hook on it, and you just pop that thing into the water, and you start reeling it in, and the way that the sun hits it, it just just pops off, like all flashy and everything, and the fish are like, ooh, what's that? right? And you can see, you know, on a clear day, you know, you can kind of see the trout, you know, hiding off in their little, under a rock or kind of near a shadow, and you just pop it out by the sun and reel that thing in, and they just come and they hit that thing because they are lured and they are enticed. But what happens when that fish bites that lure? There is a hook that leads to its catch and release. (laughs) Yes. I don't want anybody sending me emails, you know, calling the, you know, Save the Fish Association or anything like that. So, in fact, at times I would even catch and release, and I'd catch the same exact fish. Still a bloody lip, and they can't refuse. See, temptation to sin is luring, it's enticing. We wouldn't sin if sin wasn't attractive. Speaking about the faith of Moses, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25 through 26 says, He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. See, Moses knew that sin was pleasurable, but that it was only seasonal. That sin and riches 
are both like green grass, seasonal. Therefore, Moses chose the path of trials and testing, looking to a greater reward. When I would go fishing, there was a certain species of fish called carp. And and I didn't realize it at the time, but I'd see these fish, and I thought it was like a big, fat trout, like something huge, you know? And and I'd go, and I'd take my panther mark, and I'm I'm gonna get that thing, and I'd cast it, and I would reel it right past the face. I'm like, why didn't it bite? The panther martin works. It's amazing. Why didn't it bite? And I'm reeling past the carp again and again and again. Next thing, I'm just trying to hook the thing, you know, and, 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 and it's not working. Why? Because carp don't bite lures. They, they eat off the ground. They, 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 they have a different appetite. See, you know how you catch carp? You shoot them with arrows, Literally, it's, it's a type of fishing where you have a bow and arrow, and you have to shoot carp if you want to catch it, and then you reel it in with your bow. So Christians, we may be shot with the arrows of temptation from the evil one. Can't, can't stop that from happening. But let's not bite the lures, because we have a different appetite. See, the best way to resist temptation to sin is to get a better affection, to get a better desire, to have a better appetite. The best way to overcome any form of temptation in this life is to have a better love and what can be better than Jesus Christ. It's by loving Jesus that we can overcome temptation. And verse 15 says, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. This is the course that we're talking about. Sin has a course. When temptation is yielded to, there is always a painful hook. This is the course. Temptation comes to a person. The temptation lures and entices that person. The person either chooses to resist the temptation or fall to the temptation. And the course can end right there. Do you realize that temptation is not sin? Jesus was tempted, and yet he did not sin. And with every temptation, God provides a way for escape. So, so Christian, you may be tempted, but unless you act upon that temptation, unless you bite that lure that is enticing you, you have not sinned. But if desire is conceived because temptation is acted upon, then sin is born. And once sin is born, it has a way of maturing as we keep feeding it. So you have to do something. You have to kill sin. You have to kill sin at the start or it will kill you in the end. Kill sin or it will kill you. How do you kill sin? Be crucified with Jesus Christ. But if we do not come to Jesus to put an end to sin, sin will grow and sin will mature, and when it is fully mature, it will bring forth death. Again, nobody can deny that there is pleasure in sin, yet many people want to deny that there is death in sin. There is death in sin. The end of sin is death. That's its wages. That's what you'll have to pay in the end if you just live in it. If there were no pleasure in sin, then nobody would fall into temptation. Yet Hebrews clearly says pleasure for sin is only seasonal, 
So in what season is sin pleasurable? Sin is pleasurable in the season of sowing. The pleasure of sin comes when we sow in sin, but death will always come to reap. You've heard this probably. Sow a thought and you reap an act. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. And that goes both ways, either toward life in Jesus or death in sin. Verse 16 says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Those words, do not be deceived, are emphatic, this decisive command that is meant to arrest your heart, your soul, your mind this morning. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Say it to myself. Sin is enticing, sin is luring, but its sting is death. Verse 17, God has things so much better for you than than sin has. Verse 17 says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So if God cannot be tempted, and if he tempts no one, then this tells us something about the character of God that he's good, he's perfect. And every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. All that is good, all that is perfect, all that is true and right and pure in this life is all from above. Whether the green grass or the money that you have or the family that you have, all the good things, you know the good things in your life, they all come from God. Who is from above. See, our God is the God who comes down. God has good and perfect gifts coming down to us all the time. He's just sending them down. And the greatest gift that has come down to us is the salvation that is in Jesus Christ when he came down as the Son of Man and the Son of God, when he died on a cross for us as sinners, and when he rose from the dead to defeat sin, death, and the devil, and to give us the Spirit of God so that we can be overcomers. The Father sent the Son to us. The Father sends many gifts from above, innumerable gifts, because He is the Father of lights. He is the creator and the sustainer of all that is good. There is no variation or shadow due to change. There is no darkness in God at all. There's no night and day with Him. He's not shifting in shadows. He is light, never changing, always the same God has no bad days. There's never a day. You have bad days. I have bad days. But there's never a day that we can come to God and he say, I don't want to talk to you. I'm having a bad day. (laughs) God is always good. God is always perfect. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is his will. Of his own will, in verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creation. See, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God, and God's will for you is that through Jesus Christ, having heard the word of God today, having heard the truth that is found in Jesus Christ, that today you would believe it, and that by believing it, you would repent of your sins, and you would turn to Jesus, you would be saved or, or if you're already saved, you would just be more sanctified. 
He gives life to those who turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Behold, God is making all things new. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for the power of your word that speaks life and truth to us. Temptation lures us and entices us to death. But God, your word comes and stands in the way of that so that we would not be deceived. And I pray, God, that we would look to you and be saved today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So Pastor Benkai is going to come and lead us in communion. But before he does that, I just want to ask, if, is there anyone in here this morning where you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's, that's just my question. You've, you've, you've heard the message. That's just it. You want to receive Jesus today as Lord and Savior. You know the luring. You know the enticing of sin. You want him to rescue you from death. Is there anyone here? You can make a decisive decision in your mind right now and with your own will. Just as you can decide to sin, you can also decide to follow Jesus today. Does anyone want to decide to follow Jesus today? I'd love to see you just raise your hand so we can get to know you and walk with you. Okay. All right, praise God. Now, that would mean that we are all in this room, hopefully, unless you're, unless you're refusing to believe today, that would mean that we're believers. And if believers, then we can come to the tables of communion. And it's a special moment that we'll participate in that. And Pastor Benkai is going to explain what we're going to do this morning.